Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14. We pick up where we left off in our verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. Now, Heavenly Father, we just ask your blessing on our effort to study your word, to hear your voice, and to put your truth into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. It's encouraging, in a way, um, that even a man of King David's stature, a man after God's own heart, he's a successful military conquering king, a well-loved sovereign over his people, uh, ruler, Bible hero, could have such an awful uh, situation in his own family, problems at home. Um, chapter 11, the Holy Spirit kind of gave him a heads up that um, after the whole Bathsheba affair, as a result of his kind of unrestrained lust and gratuitous or unnecessary violence, that there would be an endless variety of trouble at home. And so here now in the last half of the book of 2 Samuel, from chapter 14 all the way to 24. So we've got 10 chapters to go, all right? In these closing 10 chapters are the closing 10 years of David's life. So it's not a year per chapter, but we are around the upper 50s of David's life. He's nearing 60 already. That was fast, wasn't it? A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, as James tells us, our life goes so quick. Now. The closing chapter, uh, chapters, I should say, center around the trouble at home. So the, from here on out, it's, it's trouble at home. When your king and your sons are crowned princes, though, that translates also into trouble for the entire nation. The trouble specifically in this segment is about one son in particular. The next five chapters is the story of Absalom. And uh, we've met him. Uh, it's son number three who killed son number one, Amnon, uh, in a revenge killing, you'll recall last week, uh, because Amnon had violated Absalom's sister. I should say their sister, uh, which makes it even more grievous. Now, as a result, Absalom, who killed his brother, is now estranged from King David, his father. And we saw the whole ugly thing unfold last time, didn't we? Amnon raped his uh, sister, Absalom's sister. Uh, Dad, King David, got really angry. And then there was a period. He didn't do anything about it. Absalom, uh, the, 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 the offended brother, broods for two years with this bitterness toward Amnon. And so he invites Amnon to Thanksgiving uh, dinner at his place where he gets his brother a little tipsy and then gets him a little murdered. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all you need is a little bit of that and then it's over. So now with Amnon out of the way, Absalom is now the heir apparent, as you say. He's the next one on the throne or for the throne. Now, um, but David's angry, so Absalom has to flee the country or he's going to end up 
uh, getting himself killed because he's guilty of murder. So he flees, as you recall, to Syria because his grandfather, Absalom's grandfather, on his mother's side, it was king of Syria. And so he found a place there, and so for three years, he's been living with grandpa, exiled up there in Syria. And the last verse that we read was that Absalom was exiled for three years in Syria. David started missing him because he had gotten over Amnon's death. And you know, I had a funny thought with that, that we always get over everyone's death. We just do. I mean, we, we think we won't, but we do. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking about ourselves, you know, we're just thinking, oh, everybody's going to be so shattered when we die. And maybe, <laughs> not really. I, I mean, for a while, but everybody gets over you. I'm sorry, because they're ever, all going to get over my passing as well. But we all think it's going to be. But he got over it, right? And now he's missing Absalom, who murdered Amnon, his firstborn son. And so, verse 1, now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, I can never say her name, but that is David's sister, which makes Joab David's nephew. That's 1 Chronicles 2.16, if you want to check the facts. Now Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So let's pause there. Number one, Joab butts in where he does not belong. Uh, Thou shalt not meddle in the uh, private matters of others. That's not really a command, but uh, it is certainly a principle. I could back it up with one proverb, chapter 26 and verse 17, that says, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Now, now you get the picture. Uh, it's not a gentle taking of the ears. It's grabbing his ears and making the dog mad at you. And then the dog uh, bites you. And so you should just stay out of it is what the wisdom there is. So it seems like Joab has uh, noble in- intentions anyway to kind of help uh, David. Uh, Joab is his nephew. They've walked together for years and years. They've been through some deep valleys and climbed the heights of power. And now David's king. And um, the text said that he knew David's heart was troubled. And in the Hebrew, it says that David's mind was on Absalom. And uh, he wants to bring healing to this wounded family. Now, as commander-in-chief Joab... He also knows it's dangerous to have a crown prince estranged uh, from the dynasty. And so it's kind of a preemptive move. So it's not all about David's wounded family. Joab is thinking as a military leader, this isn't isn't safe. He knows Absalom is kind of a crafty, kind of power-hungry kind of guy. 
and he is next to the uh, next to the throne. He he's going to ascend to the throne, and so Joab's thinking he better get close, and things better get better, or we could have a full-on war here. So he's probably thinking like that. But father and son are in a deadlock. Uh, the exiled son can't come back unless uh, David gives permission. So Joab devises this plan. Um, to get through to David. And it's, there's a Hebrew phrase for what it is. It's called a teaching story. It's a masal in Hebrew. And David needs a change of heart. So what, that, like the prophet Nathan, when he came, and, and he wanted to get, the Lord wanted to get through to David. But David couldn't hear it directly. So there was like this parable starring David, but unbeknownst to David. So we, uh, we heard of a story uh, of a crime committed, and it was very similar to what David did. And so David saw through this drama presented to him in the form of kind of a teaching parable, if you will. So uh, again, this is going to happen now to get through to David, kind of like the prophet did uh, back a few chapters ago. So a dramatic story is going to be acted out in front of David. David is kind of a sucker for sad movies. And so he's going to soften his heart up. And right when he just wants to cry and just kind of identifies with the story, uh, the zinger is going to come. And so Joab puts out a casting call. He needs an older woman, kind of astute or wise, with some acting ability and uh, complete with costume and script. Joab is the director, he wrote the screenplay, and he has put the words in her mouth. And for the good of Israel and the good of the king and the good of everybody, uh, she needs to, to put down a performance of a lifetime. And so he says, you'll need to look the part. He says, dress in black, no makeup, act like you're grieving. And tears, if you could cry, that would be a real plus. So the idea here is that as the story unfolds through this widow's fictitious story told in first person, David is going to relate on so many levels. And then just at the right time, bam, the curtains will go up, the lights will come on, and the lady will confront him with the truth that Joab wants him to hear. So when the woman, verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage. So here we go with the, the little drama, all right? And she said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She said, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family, the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. Don't worry about this. Done. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me 
and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. All right, let's pause there. Number two, uh, the teaching story has been delivered and an Academy Award performance at that. Maybe best picture of the year. You know what it's called? Uh, the Widow of Tekoa. There we go. And maybe she gets a Best Actress Award, too. Now, our actress gains access to the king. Now, amazing, because in ancient Israel, those who felt that they uh, didn't get justice with the local judges, that they didn't get uh, treated fairly, they had access to the court of the king himself. And that was kind of a biblical approach to life. And um, so uh, no doubt Joab pulled some strings to make sure her case got on the top of the pile there. But uh, what a setup. Joab really had his thinking cap on, didn't he? I mean, look at who he chose. Uh, a woman, not a man, because David's going to need his heart to go out. So he chooses a woman and an older woman, like a mom. And then not just a woman and an older woman, but a grieving older woman who's hurting. And not just a grieving older woman, now she's a widow, so she's helpless. So we have a grieving older woman who's a widow in trouble. Oh, he, he's, he's hooked from the opening words Save me, king. Oh, come on. It's over. He's, he's completely hooked. His heart is already uh, on, on the line, and now the big fish just needs to be reeled in. Now, here's the sad story, verses 4 through 7. Uh, it's summed up. It should sound familiar to him. Uh, two brothers are in an argument. Sadly, one of them loses his cool, Things get out of hand, O king. There's a fight out in the field, and nobody's there to break them up. And words are exchanged, and you know how brothers can be. And things escalate. And one boy, one brother, kills the other brother. Oh, my. And now the family rises up for justice. So, David, are you, you tracking with me? Sound familiar? So justice is demanded. The family wants to execute him for the murder of his brother. But he's hiding out with me, and they're pressuring me. They're bringing lawsuit. Uh, hand him over. They say, but I can't do that, O king. I only had two sons. The husband's gone. One is dead. Now this little light of mine is about not able to shine anymore. <laughs> because I don't have a last name to carry on. And who's going to help me? Oh, so what do you do? Do you err on the side of mercy and, and leave me my only son? Or, or are we going to just go with the strict law and, and kill the heir? Oh, king. Oh, you're smart. Figure this one out for me. Help me. Maybe you could kind of, in this case, pardon him. Well, verse 8, it didn't take David very long to 
rule on her behalf. Leave it to me, verse eight, paraphrase. I'll see to it that no one lays a finger on him. So go home, no worries. Now, the instant ruling came because David is getting it subliminally. David's going to make an exception. He's going to ignore the cause of justice um, for family sympathy and loyalty. And now... Uh, the widow expresses concern for David. This is one of my favorite parts of her story for bending the rules. So he says, don't worry. I'll bend the rules for you. I'm the king. Don't worry. He's going to be fine. I'm going to get him out of this. And then she says, now, if you're going to get in trouble for this, if someone's going to criticize you or bring heat to you, I'll take the blame. We, you shouldn't, the guilt shouldn't fall on you, verse 9. I really like that. A little extra, you know, oh, don't get in trouble on my behalf. And then verse 10, David appreciates her concern and says, hey, if anyone objects on the king or objects to you, bring him to me. It'll be the last peep out of him anybody ever hears. That's what verse 10 says. So her closing line, she's like, okay, now we just need to get this in writing. So I need you to swear. So we need a notary public to come in. Verse 11, then she said, please just swear to me by the Lord your God that you won't let anyone take vengeance against my son. I want no more bloodshed. I'm done with all this murder. As surely as the Lord lives, he says. Oh, oath time. The mic, she's making sure the mic is on. <laughs> Not a hair on your son's head will be harmed. Perfect, sealed with an oath. Then there's a pregnant pause in the movie. The music changes. She straightens up a little bit, and she gets a funny look on her face, and then she says, well, King, <clears throat> since I'm here, I'd like to mention something else. Something else is on my mind. Permission to speak? Verse 12. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. And he said, permission granted. Speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one, Absalom, home again. We must all die, O king. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. What a beautiful verse. Verse 15. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, well, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together with from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. All right, number three. The jig is up, as they say. Game over. The ruse has finished. David has been uh, trapped. And so Joab's gotten what he wants. What does he want? He wants David to admit what Joab's been asking about the reconciliation, that it's a good thing. He wants David to say about a very similar situation, oh, the rules can be bent. 
In this particular case, I mean, I, I, I as king can make an exception. Oh, that's what Joab's been saying for a couple of years now. This is dangerous, king. We need to get that kid back here. And David's like, hey, I'm dad, yes, but I'm king as well. Uh, I think we need to understand the immense dilemma that David had before him as father and as king, because he's also judged. So grandma says, love it. Uh, got a little something on my mind, Sonny. Permission to speak? And then the king says, permission granted. So she lets David have it right between the eyes. Um, and here's her thesis. By failing to restore Absalom to the royal court, David's acting against the interests of the people of God because apparently Absalom, as I've said, is next in line for the throne, keeping him in exile, as I've been saying, is a threat to Israel. In other words, if you're agreeing to pardon and protect a guilty son you don't know, how much more than, according to your own conclusion, should you protect your own son? Now, you do it for an inconsequential small family like ours. How about when the entire nation of Israel is at stake? Would you bend the rules there? Well, she drives her point home at, with two truths about life. First, she says, King, life is short. You know, uh, you can't pick up the water that's spilled on the ground because we're all going to die. You get one life, and uh, life is short, and then you die. Uh, Amnon is gone, uh, killing Absalom, can't bring him back. Uh, you get one life. You get one life. You have one opportunity to bring Absalom back. That's kind of lesson number one. And then lesson number two, the beautiful gospel right here at verse 14, where it says, God, God really is the reconciler of the heart. Uh, find a way to do this, David. God finds a way to bring us back to himself. God always finds a way, she says to him. God makes a way to bring the exiled ones back to himself. So maybe if you need a little theology to help move your heart toward mercy, maybe you could say, well, God made a way for you during your exile with Bathsheba, and when you murdered her innocent husband, there was a way for you to come back, wasn't there, David? Then why not extend that same grace and mercy to your son? That was a good one. She's a smart old lady. So through Jesus... Um, we all have that opportunity. You know, God doesn't wink at our sin. He dies for it. And so God made a way for us. Uh, confessions of sin, calling on him, repentance and faith. There's always a way back. Always. No matter where you are. If there's breath in your nostrils, there's a way back home to be with the Lord. So, um, just a wonderful thing. So uh, she concludes with a Jewish motherly blessing in verse 17. She says, in, a, in effect, David, you're a smart cookie. You're going to do the right thing. And may the Lord bless you as you do it. Amen. <laughs> I could just see her. Sorry. Verse 18. Then the king answered the woman. All right. 
Do not hide from me anything I ask you, okay? I'm about to ask you something. I want the truth. Can you agree? Whatever I ask you, you're going to tell me the truth, right? And the woman said, let my Lord, the king, speak. In other words, yes, I will. I'm going to tell you the truth. 19. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king, has said. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant, Joab, did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. So number four, the truth revealed and Joab is exposed as the director of the screenplay. So yeah... David is a smart man, and he does have heavenly discernment. He doesn't always live by it like none of us, uh, like all of us, I should say, have that problem. Uh, but on occasion, he is very wise. And so he says, okay, it's my turn. <clears throat> so, number one, uh, I'm going to ask you something. I'm going to ask you to be 100% honest with your answer. Agreed? And she says, yes. Um, about my nephew, Joab. He put you up to all of this, didn't he? And so look who's cornered now. Um, she comes clean in verse 19, and she says, hey, there's no wiggle room here. I can't turn right, can't turn left. Uh, you know, you know who can keep anything from the king, the Lord's man. Not going to lie. Yeah, it was Joab. He wrote the script. And here's why, verse 20, in the Hebrew, well, the ESV has to change the course of things. In the Hebrew, it's to give you a fresh or different perspective or to improve things by giving you a fresh way to look at it. So that's exactly what Joab was after. And by the way, the widow adds, and, and by the way, I knew you'd figure it out, smart cookie that you are. All right, now, verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, oh, Joab suddenly appears from the side room where he was listening to the whole thing. Joab standing there, behold, now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur uh, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not go into the king's presence. So number five, uh, Joab gets what he wants. Mission accomplished. He gets what he wants, sort of, right? So Joab uh, took a big risk, really playing around with Uncle David. He could have ended up dead. Uh, David issues the order and uh, to bring Absalom back, and Joab prostrates himself in verse 22. He, like I said, he's probably coming out of a side room. He's listening. David says, okay, go get him already. And Joab's overjoyed. It seems like they have been discussing this for quite some time. In verse 22, he says, finally, 
now I know God has shown me favor and, and you're on board with my advice and I couldn't be happier. And I just, I bow before you just as uh, out of gratitude. So, uh, but the permission is granted, but there's a caveat, there's a condition. Uh, verse 24, he has to live outside the palace and I don't want to see him. I don't want him in my presence. He can come back and be in Israel, but I don't want to see him. He's not ready to see him. Now, David is parenting issues. Uh, he first uh, is overly indulgent uh, with Amnon, and he's overly harsh now with Absalom. I mean, if you're going to let him come back, uh, why he can't come into your presence? He's still... Uh, working on this, apparently. Uh, Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it depends on you to be at peace with everyone. So we do our part, and it sometimes is very hard, isn't it? Because you can't compromise a moral goodness. You, you cannot uh, live a lie. But you have to love and show mercy. Sometimes that's very hard to do. Because love doesn't delight in evil, right? So there's a moral component. It's not anything goes with love. So you can't, it's not like let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya and everybody be at peace with everybody. That is not biblical peace. Jesus said, I, I didn't come to bring that kind of peace. I came to bring a sword. And because of me in a family, at a family table, a dad and a son will be estranged from one another. Because I, in truth, polarize people. You go with me or against me, and then you become kind of adversaries over me. And yet, in that, we need to be mindful of being peacemakers and open to reconciliation without compromising our faith in the Lord. That's where David's stuck, where all of us are kind of stuck. I think I would rather err on the side that David's erring on. I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to sin against God. And he knows the law. So let's finish up. Verse 25, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. So Absalom's in town, and we got to meet him because he's going to be a lot of trouble. So we got to figure out what does he look like and what kind of guy is he. So that's what we're getting right now. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. This guy was a leading man in Hollywood, if ever there was one, verse 26. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, and when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head. It was 200 shekels. It's a few pounds of hair. That's a lot of hair. By the king's weight. All right. Verse 27. There were born to Absalom three sons. He had one daughter whose name was Tamar. Hmm. After his violated sister. Right. And she was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. 
Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king about reconciling him, right? But Joab would not come to him because Joab's smart and he knows what Absalom wants. And so he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, Absalom speaking, see Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to stay there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilted me, let him put me to death. He's still justifying himself that he did nothing wrong. Verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All right, so lastly, number six, introducing Prince Fabio. Absalom. Now, he, oh, come on, come on. When the, when the Holy Spirit tells you that from the top of the guy's head to his toenails, there wasn't one blemish about the guy. He was perfect as a visual specimen of a handsome man. Wow. So now we're going to see what he looks like and, and get a feel for a little bit of his pride that goes with that attraction and his character. So it kind of helps explain why David might not want to spend a whole lot of time with him, especially in view of what's coming. So he's this visually perfect specimen. Uh, Israel is going to fall in love with him because he's gonna cast the magic spell, and part of the spell is how beautiful he is in appearance, and it, uh, Israel always falls for that, and don't most people. They just, if the, if the person in question is attractive, it's a real plus, and uh, we let character kind of uh, go out of the question if the appearance is beautiful enough. In other words, it's more important what the person looks like on the outside than the kind of person they are on the inside. That is just human nature, sadly. Uh, he's beautiful. He's got his good looks. And it sounds like he knows it. It sounds like he's got a lot of mirrors in his house. <laughs> so he can reaffirm that he is so beautiful to himself. So he's got this fantastic head of hair. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that it all starts with the hair. That's the problem. <laughs> That's always the hair. It goes south from there, right? So he says, listen to about this guy. Um, the pride, because you only weigh your shaved hair on the floor if you want to boast about it. That's the only reason you would even not put it in the garbage. This guy goes, oh, look at that. Look at that. Do you know how much that weighs? Get me a scale. And then he publishes it. You know how much hair I got on my head? When I got a haircut and I only need one once a year, when I get a... Do I sound like I'm a little upset about this? All right. Let me get a cleansing breath. All right. Three pounds of hair. You know what I say to you, Absalom? Whatever. Whatever. Get over your hair. 
Oh, my word. So, so it says that he liked to boast about his fabulous head of hair. And, of course, uh, he has three boys and a girl. But by the time chapter 18 comes, the three boys are gone. So that, that says something of judgment and problems with the boys and Absalom as well. The girl is named Tamar. Why? So that every time that he calls her name, he could kindle the flame of hate and anger every time he says her name. So don't, don't think, commentators say, oh, don't, don't think it's because Big Brother just wants to in honor. No, he wants to keep the flame of anger and hate and vengeance alive. So every time he says, see, Tamar. See, that's what he wants. He doesn't want to forgive and forget. He wants to milk that for all it's worth. Uh, good looks run in the family. Tamar, his daughter, is beautiful like he is, like his father, handsome David, married to that princess, his mother, Ma'aka. So they're all good looking. You know what I say about that? Whenever you see that in the scriptures, usually there's a problem. And uh, I, I just feel sorry because uh, attractiveness in the world, looks and talent and money, uh, usually is a curse. It's usually a curse. Poor Hollywood icons that get sucked in to this God-making machine. The soul of, of somebody like Justin Bieber, this little kid, this little kid. I, I know it's funny that I should suddenly mention his name from the pulpit. However, I'm being serious. Does not your heart go out? He is destroyed. He's a destroyed soul. Because the world said, we build you up to worship you as a god. And we, we made you a god-like person. And now we're going to destroy you and let you destroy yourself. And so many names, so many names go that way. They had attractiveness and sex appeal and talent. And it was a curse. It would have been better for them to be born uh, ordinary looking and have a weight problem. It would have been a blessing to some people will end up perishing because they stumbled over their own blessing. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your own splendor, and I cast you to the ground. Ezekiel 28, verse 17, about Lucifer. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Looks, smarts, it doesn't have to be looks, gifts, abilities, money. We're proud about anything. Our car, our bikes, our motorcycles, our clothes, our watches, our possessions, our status, who we know, who we don't know, education. It doesn't matter. We find something to be proud about, you know? So Absalom's had it with this two-year house arrest. Everybody knows. David's reminding everybody, look, he did something terrible. He, doesn't, he can come back. But I, by my saying, hey, there needs to be distance, I'm telling everybody he, didn't do, he did something that was very wrong. 
Now, he could have done it in a better way, but he chose to keep some distance there. That's what he was saying, that he did something terrible. And perhaps Absalom's pride is wounded, and he's mad. He's mad about it. So Prince uh, wants an audience with his father, the king, so he's getting bitter. He leaves two voicemails for Joab, right, in verse 29. Go ahead and laugh a little bit. Thank you. He leaves a couple of voicemails for Joab, and uh, Joab's smart. He knows what he wants. He wants the throne. So Joab doesn't want to be associated with him because he, he, he smells what's coming. Absalom wants the throne, so he's ignoring him. No, I'm not bringing you closer to David. And so he says, okay, well, I'll set your field on fire. And then Joab shows up at his door. Would you go and do that for? He goes, well, I got you to my door, didn't it? And so he says, I want to go into my father's presence. And you're the only one who can arrange that. So here's what he looks like. Here's how he's proud. Here's, here's how he's nasty and manipulative and ruthless and conniving. And the fireworks and Absalom's plan uh, uh, it works and it forces the meeting and he whines in verse 32 I should have just stayed in Syria with my grandfather what good is it me here with my dad treating me that way so Absalom's stuck here's here's the problem he doesn't want to be in Syria because he wants to be king of Israel and he can't be king when dad's not associating with him so Joab reluctantly schedules a little meeting and outwardly you know, verse 33, there's hugs, there's kisses, there's an outward appearance of submission. And outward bow is so much easier than an inward action of grace. So father and son, for all intents and purposes, by looking at it, you're like, oh, after five years, they're in each other's arms. But the next verse, Absalom is plotting to get rid of his father. The next verse. So inwardly, nothing's changed. But outwardly, oh, there's hugs and kisses and all of that because uh, there's no record of repentance on Absalom's part, no record of an apology. Does he ask his dad for forgiveness? Is there those kinds of tears? No. No, he's got an agenda. I want your throne so we need to be kind of, yeah, I need to get closer. So I need what I need. And so there's no record of sacrifices uh, in the temple for sin. There's no record of prayers to get right. You know, God makes a way to come back to him, the banished ones, right? There's a way, and you don't see that way. You just see an outward display of, oh, you know, some fake tears and some hugs, and, and Absalom makes his move. So now that the prince has been received by King David, Absalom is free to win the crowds over. You're going to read some disgusting things in the next uh, three or four verses. He, he just makes the move to quietly kind of organize and overthrow his father, his own father, who just opened his presence and heart to him. And perhaps the reason the dad waited so long is because of the very next verse after he opened the throne room and opened and made himself vulnerable he knew David knew but he did it 
he, he made himself vulnerable, you know, and I, I think he did the, the right thing there because as far as he, he could see, you know, I'm going to be merciful and extend the mercy to his kid. So a- Absalom now is free to do his thing, and as we're about to see, it's really ugly. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 16, for where you have selfish ambition, there you will find every, every evil practice. And you're about to see like a whole list. And it all starts from one thing, scary phrase, self-centeredness. Being self-absorbed, the Bible says, when you're self-absorbed in that, encapsulated, is every vile and wicked, terrible thing you could imagine. But oh, I'm just a little self-centered. Oh, no, no, no. Every evil and wicked thing, when you're being all about me, myself, and I, Oh, it's the potential to destroy the world, to destroy Israel, to destroy a nation. There's a little guy running around in North Korea who's all about me, myself, and I. And one wrong move from one me, myself, and I person could start a disaster for the world. So don't, don't be thinking, hey, you know, I just got a problem. Sometimes I get a little tunnel vision and I'm all about me. You know, I just, need a, I just need a little me time. You know what? That's a bad thing. Don't do that. So David's about to lose his throne, his crown, his concubines, his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, and ultimately Absalom, his own son. And there are some really dark days coming ahead. But let's look at some of the things we learned, reflections from chapter 14. Now, uh, when we're at the Dave Dave Ramsey uh, uh, conference here that we watch the DVDs, at the end of each uh, hour-long lecture, uh, they're not lectured, they're they're, they're great, but at the end of them, uh, there's a one-minute takeaway. And, and you hear music, and he just wants you to think for one minute, what would you take away from this? Love that. What, what tonight, what, what stood out? Just take a second. Where did the Holy, Holy Spirit just underline something that was being said? Like, whoa, wow, yeah, oh. Where was there a connection made? Where was there a warning? Where was a little light came on? Where is there an action item needed in your heart and life from some truth that got revealed to you? It's not just that you learned some information about chapter 14. You learned some information from the Holy Spirit to put into action. What's the action item? So, therefore, I learned this. I heard you, Lord, and I'm going to... That's your takeaway minute. Just think about that. Now, I started thinking about it, and I got five little statements here for for me and what I gathered from it. Number one, remember the power of sin and disobedience to impact and corrupt the next generation. Uh, We have an obligation to die to sin for the sake of others, for the sake of those we love. Number two, parents must strive to find the balance between love and mercy and discipline and instruction, not to be overly harsh and strict and not to be overly indulgent and passive. Loving instruction, loving nurture, loving encouragement, loving disciplines. Three, 
As far as it depends on us, let us be at peace with all people, especially with members of our own family. Uh, may God give us the wisdom to be able to show love and acceptance without compromising truth and Christian testimony. Number four, may God guard our hearts from pride, since pride sets us up for disaster. And number five, as the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul the Apostle to the Philippians, may we do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Nothing guards your life like humility and love. You want a safe Christian life? Humility? Putting yourself low and love others-centered. You'll safeguard your life. And best of all, this is my biggest takeaway of all, was God devises a way so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Verse 14, let us always find the way home when we wander. The way home is so easy. A prayer, confession of sin, repentance, just so easy because Jesus has an open door policy. Amen? Amen.